0: You don't have to be a rocket scientist to help realize a mission to Mars. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. This podcast is brought to you by Invesco QQQ. Anyone can become an agent of innovation. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc.
1: Welcome to Trillions. I'm Joel Weber.
2: And I'm Eric Balchunas.
1: Okay, Eric, you made a call in January 2020 at Inside um, ETFs. And we're going to actually spend uh, today's episode bringing the world up to speed on that call and everything that unfolded. What was your call? Well, it wasn't a call per, per se. Uh, it was just... A, I was on
2: to an ETF that's just really having quite the breakout moment. in At Inside ETFs, which is like the Comic-Con of ETFs, every year they have this best new ETF competition with all the pundits from the industry arguing for what the best launch was of the year before. So in January 2020, I argued for URNM, which is the uh, North Shore Uranium Mining ETF. And it just came out a month ago in December 2019, so nobody heard of it. And I, I had... Looked at uranium a couple times in the 10 years prior. There's a ticker called URA, which had been around, and it's always bad. It would have a little head fake here and there, but it would just go down again. But the story stuck with me. There was a narrative there that I was like, there's something here. And so as I've seen more people talk about ESG, it's really occurred to me that there's definitely an inconsistency between people wanting to keep up their lifestyles, yet also wanting to fight climate change. And so I was making the case on stage that URNM, is A, intriguing because it launched after a horrible backtest. You never see that. And also that it was sort of like green investing for realists. Um, You know, you arguably are going to need to have nuclear if everybody can keep up what they're doing in their economies, and yet you can fight climate change. Uh, You just really can't get it done with solar and wind. So that's the case I made. I didn't win. I probably came in third. It's based on like how loud the audience claps. <laughs> but I will say I won the performance since competition race by a mile. This thing is up two hundred seventy three percent since then. It's up four hundred and twelve percent since March twentieth, right? Which is a bottom for a lot of equity ETFs. That's double arc, and everybody thinks arc's like the best thing. Uh, that's double arc, uh, about four times the Qs. And this year it's up one hundred thirteen percent, which is by far the best performing equity ETF the next best one is something like 80%. So this is a white hot area. And so I will take a little victory lap and say, I was onto it early, not that I quote called it.
1: Okay, thanks for that explanation. So if you haven't haven't been able to gather that yet, we're gonna talk about uranium. Joining us is gonna be Tim Rotolo, North Shore Indices. He's the guy who actually came out with that uranium ETF. We're also gonna be joined by Michael Alkin, the CIO of Sachem Cove Partners. And John Ciampaglia, the CEO of Sprott Asset Management. This time on Trillions, Nuke Sanity. Tim, Michael, John, welcome to Trillions. Thanks, Thanks for having so us. Very much. Okay, so Tim, I want to start with you because uh, uranium was your big idea. Why? Why did you get this idea? How did How did it hit you?
3: Yeah, so I'll, I'll stop you there. I mean, it was Mike's idea. Mike Mike was the one who he and I met in 2017, and he had written this just incredibly succinct white paper talking about, I mean, really what everybody is now talking about. Um, big supply deficit, uh, you know, multi-year bear market, shrinking equity market caps, and it just made so much sense. And I, I've always been attracted to deeply contrarian things, and that's that's kind of Mike's bent. And fast forward to 2018, uh, we had gotten involved in, in launching a hedge fund a- in the space and to invest in uranium. And it became apparent that there was this big four seller out there, which happened to be URA um, because they changed their mandate. And I looked at it and just said, if this thesis is correct, there will need to be some pure play mining ETF like there is for every other commodity, gold, silver, you know, and even Rare Earth Metals have had an ETF that was more of a pure play. And it just looked like a really interesting entry point. And I knew nothing about ETFs at that point. Um, so we kind of got up to speed and right time, right place, launched it in 2019. And, and then we're off to the races. And the whole time, Mike's thesis is playing out. And literally, you can go back to 2017 and look at videos um, that he did at conferences where he laid out the thesis. And I mean, every single point, and it, I think... You know, some of the ESG stuff was there, but the extent to which the green and the nuclear revolution, those are always kind of upside cases, but that for the, for the thesis to work, you never actually needed any of those things. That's just kind of icing on the cake at this point. Um, and it's been, you know, great to see this nuclear Renaissance that we're kind of in the midst of beginning.
1: Okay. So Mike, Mike, talk to us more about that, that Renaissance and and also, um, what led you to to sort of recognize that this was going to be this opportunity? And also, I'm really curious, you know, why has this thing basically tracked with the pandemic, right? Like it's really popped during that time.
4: Yeah, Joe, sure. So it, my whole career has been spent on being contrarian and looking for things that people are not interested in at the time. They tend to find recency biases and and the longer the bear market, uh, uh, the longer the, you know, the recency bias and the more they had an anchor to it, right? So in the case of nuclear power, we had looked at it in the past in 20, uh, 2007, it had, had a big run 2011 after Fukushima, but didn't, we were working on other things and didn't have time to really dive in. in 2015, though, had looked at something where the market cap of the industry had gone from about $150 billion down to about $4 billion. The number of companies had gone from maybe 500 down you know, to 50. And so it was devastated. And so at that time, we decided it was time to dig in and just understand what the role of nuclear power is. Because as all of us, we see, uh, you know, you talk about the greening of, of decarbonizing the world. That's not, it's, it's gaining great momentum now, but it's, it's relatively new. Um, uh, but even then it was starting to come around, but we know wind and solar. So what I wanted to do was understand better the role of nuclear power versus the alternatives that can help decarbonize the world. And what I realized after spending, because at that time the cell side had disappeared. If you were a sell side uranium analyst, you were likely fired. When the commodity is down 90%, you're out of a job. And so there was really very little research, a couple of industry forecasters that were around, but uh, I said, let's take a fresh start at this. And Is there a case for nuclear power? And when you dive in and nobody's paying attention and it's just sitting there hiding in plain sight, what you realize is it's not a sexy growth business, but with draconian assumptions, it was a 1% growth business. And you realize that it's not a competitor to wind and solar. It's it's a complement to wind and solar. It's baseload. It's a beast. It's always on. And then as you dive in further, you say, wait a second, on a per terawatt hour of electricity generated, it's the safest form in the world of electricity generation, which most people would say, what are you talking about, right? But math is math, facts are facts. And then there's the one thing you have to try and, and understand is the waste, right? We all hear, oh, nuclear waste. It, and, and again, that's that's a bias that exists because at the end of the day, it's really the only contained waste. You know where it goes. It sits in its cooling ponds for five years. It then sits in concrete steel reinforced uh, casks sitting on the, on the utility. So it, you know where that stream is. And, and really, uh, then d- looking at that, saying, "Okay, it's real. Nuclear power is here to can help decarbonize the world." A- eventually, the economics have to sort themselves out. It's twelve percent of electricity generation in the world, and at the time, uh, the cost of you know the price of uranium was probably in the high teens, low twenties, and, and the marginal cost of production is close to fifty. And so. I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed, but I know that you can't pull something out of the ground at 50 and sell it at 18, that doesn't work. So you need to have supply discipline. And that was really the genesis of it. Now, where people get confused is they look at the, if you're in the U.S. or you're in Europe, it's not a growing industry here. It's it's a flat to slightly declining industry, but in 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 the developing world, it's a, it's a very rapidly growing industry. So you just have to be able to, to understand the differences.
2: All right. Well, Mike, you just went over a lot. Um, there's a lot to unpack, and there's a couple things we want to we're going to come back to, which is the the waste, you know, and the sentiment of having a reactor near your house. I want to get to that later in the episode. I want to just keep it to the here and now with the with the funds, though. And let's bring in John and talk Sprott. So we've got the URNM and URA, which track equities in the U.S. Then up in Canada, John, you have Sprott Physical Uranium Trust. Now this actually holds. Yellow powder, right in warehouses around the world, like the way gold would, would hold gold gold bars. And this fund has really um, sort of come out of its shell in the past couple of weeks. It's now, I believe, a billion holds 25 million pounds of uranium, and has become a big player in the market. And recently, you had to go and ask for new shares to hit to feed the demand, and that actually set up another a catalyst event for the whole sector. So I guess, could you talk about what you're seeing up there and how you got involved?
5: Sure. Well, thanks for having me on. So um, Sprott Asset Management is based in Toronto, and uh, we often think of it as being the mine finance capital of the world. So Sprott has a very long history with all things mining. And in the last uranium cycle that happened in kind of the mid 2000s, we were very active on the, uh, on the equity side, and uh, we were also very involved with the... Uh, the genesis of the predecessor vehicle, which was called Uranium Participation Corp. It was launched in 2005. It was a holding company structure on the Toronto Stock Exchange. And uh, after a very long pursuit, we acquired that vehicle in July of 2021, and we converted it from a holding company structure to a more traditional investment fund. So it's a closed end fund that trades on the Toronto Stock Exchange. It also trades on OTC pink sheets right now, and the reception we received with the fund has just been phenomenal. In the last couple of months, the trading volume has really picked up. Um, the vehicle, as you said, owns about 25 million physical pounds of uh, U-308, or known as better known as yellow cake. Um, and in the last say six weeks, we've acquired over six million pounds. Um, as we've issued new shares in the trust, we've uh, we've backed those with physical, more physical uranium.
2: Help me understand, 25 million pounds, let's add six to it, 31, 31 million pounds. What percentage of the r- uranium sitting out there is that, or is there a better way to sort of put that into context?
5: Sure. So it, we right now, the trust owns about 25 million. So when we acquired the company, um, it uh, it had about 18 and, and change million pounds. So we've been adding pretty consistently. So, to give you some perspective, because honestly, when I first uh, acquired the fund and tried to put it into context in my head, it's, it's pretty mind boggling the amount of uranium. So, we could power the entire nuclear fleet in France, which produces 70% of the country's power for one year with all of that material, just to give you a sense of how much uranium that is. So, it's a huge quantity, it's, it's stored at three different conversion facilities in the Western world. There's one in the U.S., one in Canada, and one in France. So that's where all these drums are uh, are residing right now. And how
1: did you break that news to your wife that you had just acquired 25 million pounds of uranium? How'd that go over?
5: Uh, well, she thinks I'm a total geek anyway, so this just added to the uh, added to the legend.
1: Okay, walk us through what it takes to actually like take possession of 25 million pounds of uranium.
5: Yeah. So we're accustomed to dealing with a lot of bulky commodities. We have a number of NYSE uh, listed tickers, PHYS and PSLV. And so we're accustomed to moving around large amounts of gold and large amounts of silver, silver, in particularly in particular is, is very difficult to move around, but Uranium is a whole other, obviously category. It is probably the most regulated and secure supply chain of anything in the world. As you could imagine, every single pound from mine to conversion facility to nuclear reactor is tracked So, for obvious reasons. So um, the, you know that, that gives us a lot of comfort that the supply chain is very safe. And, um, but a lot of this stuff, it moves around on ships, it moves around on, on trucks, and it, it goes from just a few places in the world. The predominant producers are in uh, Kazakhstan Canada, Australia, and uh, there's a number of, of mines in Africa. So it's a commodity that is uh, concentrated in only a few parts of the world, which, you know, we may, we think that makes it more scarce and more susceptible to, to supply disruptions.
2: And do, do you think we will or could see one of these launched in the US, like a physically backed uranium ETF? I would, I would think there'd be the, the iron is hot to file for one.
5: So, part of our reorganisation plan for Uranium Participation Corp was a pledge that Sprott would pursue a US listing and we're going to start that work in the, in the coming weeks. Uh, nobody has ever successfully launched a, a, a physical Uranium stockpiling fund in the, in the US. Somebody tried once but was denied because it was more of a trading company. So we know we we have uh, a long road ahead of us in terms of working with the regulator to get approval for the for the new vehicle. Um, it's something we've done many times in terms of of uh, securing SEC approval for commodity stockpiling funds. We have a lot of experience with that, and that's something we're going to be working on. It is a novel listing, so we don't really know what we're going to encounter until we we're right in the in the in the thick of it.
0: You don't have to be a rocket scientist to help realize a mission to Mars. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc.
2: The ticker that trades OTC is SRUUF. It looks like that's starting to make its way around the Wall Street Bets crowd, the Reddit crowd. Why are they locking into this trade? Um, You know, is it just because it's, Place to make money, or is there some other populist motive they have?
5: Well, you know, at the end of the day, it really is about the the, the thesis, you know, underpinning the story. Um, you know, I'm not going to deny that there's probably some some short term money chasing this right now, but that's the way the market works. But I'm I've been amazed that the, the growing number of investors I've spoken to that have been in the trade for the last few years, and and just to step back a second, we've been working on this since 2017 so this isn't some some idea we just whipped up to, to capture some kind of a you know meme following. Uh, we've been working on this for a long time because we, we fundamentally thought like the, the market needed to reset but in the last uh, couple of months I've noticed a much broadening of interest uh, in the early days it was it was a very small group of specialty investors or contrarian investors or value investors Now I'm seeing it broaden out to generalists they're getting interested. In the story, um, and obviously we're seeing a lot more individual investors, which I think is great um, to, to make the market more liquid and, and active. And the Sprott Physical Uranium Trust is, is the largest vehicle of its kind in the world, and and that's drawing those investors to us on both the Toronto Stock Exchange and, and the OTC market.
1: So, Mike, I want to bring it back to you because we've talked about the the supply here. Um, there is a demand question, which is obviously you know there there's a case for for more nuclear. Facilities, but you know what's the what's the outlook like for more nuclear? Um, you mentioned the emerging world. You know, there's there's all kinds of policy implications. But like, what are what are you seeing, and what kind of timelines are these projects on? Uh, it's a
4: great question, Joel. So if you think about both the supply and the demand side, in uranium are very long-lived assets. It could take it. You take Cigar Lake, at, uh, one of the biggest uranium mines in the world, owned by Cameco. It was a thirty-plus year endeavor from finding it to bringing it, permitting it. Nobody wants one of these things in their backyard, right? So very long life and the same thing on the demand side to, 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 to plan a reactor, to get the approvals, to build it. You know, you're talking decades plus. So when you think of these things, here we are 2020, you look out and say, okay, what's 2040 look like? And the World Nuclear Association, uh, which does a very holistic bottoms up approach, utility by utility uh, to what demand look like. And in and, and many years, they're they've been quite dour in their outlook, but recently in the last few years, they've taken that outlook up. And if you just look at their recently released demand report through 2040, you're looking at 2.6% per annum annual uh, growth uh, in in demand for nuclear power. And that does not factor in what you can expect to see, which would be uh, life extensions out to 80 years for many of these reactors, which uh, many of them can get. It uh, doesn't include uh, small modular reactors, which are uh, easy, easier to build, more scalable. So you're seeing a, a, a nice growth profile, uh, and it, it doesn't take a big stretch with life extensions to push up towards that 3% uh, per annum growth, which is a, r- a very reasonable growth uh, number.
5: Yeah, one, com- one comment I would add about the the wind and storage. I'll give you a couple of great anecdotes of, of recent so you look at the UK, um, in the last year wind speeds have been lower than average. You know, that's just out of their control. So what are they, what have they had to do? Well, they had to fire up more natural gas plants, which then cause you know creates more carbon offsets that plants have to buy. And look look at last February when the winter storm hit Texas. The wind the, the turbines froze, the natural gas wells froze, the whole system went down at a time when electricity demand spiked. So this whole narrative about reliable baseload power, I think, is very important for electrification of the grid, um, and also, you know, greenhouse gas reduction targets. Yeah, no, on on the
3: supply side, I mean, I think when, when I first looked at Mike's original thesis, what was so attractive is, as he pointed out, the thesis actually didn't require any nuclear demand growth, you could write it to zero. The issue is a supply issue, and a marginal cost production issue, and that you need prices that are higher. And I think that's what you've Why the the price and the the equities have been rallying so much recently is up until now, the demand story is is kind of there. And you've had all these right sale kickers. What's been the issue is there's been there's a supply deficit that's formed. So you don't actually have enough uranium in the world to power all these nuclear reactors. So just the demand growth that we're seeing now is just exacerbating that supply deficit. And and so you need that you need those higher prices in order to incent new mine production to fill that deficit. So let me jump in here with that, because I get this question on Twitter a lot.
2: Does this have room to run? And so if there's two issues going on here, one is there was a supply problem. Well, now URA is up. I'm going to use URA in this example. Sorry, Tim, because it's been around for like 12 years. URA since inception or since Fukushima is down 75% still, even with that massive 200% pop. So the chart looks like a big move down and then a little a little like little dipper up. Hasn't come up to where it was. How far does it have to run just on this supply issue? Pretend there's no demand for nuclear as green energy. What's your estimate on that room to run on just the supply story?
4: So it depends on, you know, everyone likes to talk about where does the market balance, right? So what's the marginal cost of production and uh, and. The reality is, if you look at the four uranium cycles, it doesn't work that way, right? It's it's a it's a commodity where when when the price is down. To give you a little perspective, uh, before the last cycle that really started moving in November of 2000, when it bottomed out at seven dollars in those dollars. Um, uh, for the prior several years, it had uh, the utilities, which are the by the vast majority, ninety nine percent of uranium. Um, they because it's long-lived assets, it's long-lived mines. Typically, the industry most uranium is purchased under long-term contracts, seven, eight, nine, ten years, some longer. Um, during the last bottom, when prices were had bottomed out in in the high single digits, um, they were contracting at about a third of their consumption per year for many, many years. You fast forward to today, since 2012 through 2021, they've been purchasing at about a third of their annual consumption when prices start moving and 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 requirements are uncovered into the future they start to have more and more out into the future in the last cycle you saw them purchasing at 120 to 160 percent for many years of their annual consumption so it's one of these things where you're looking and, and it What's the price it balances out? You know, you could say 65, 70 bucks, you can bring on the mines, but it's not that simple because these you need many new mines to be built and they're not built yet. And if you look at the history of bringing uranium mines online, it's very bad. So many things can go wrong. They're in tough countries to get licenses and permits, uh, building them right now well, you're going to be facing competition for equipment and people, but, but many of these mines need to be built. So, um it depends where and and you know you think about uh wh- how far could they run it depends what price you're using if the market balances in the 65-ish 70 range well last time the uh, you were signing contracts at 90 and a 100 dollars and a 100 and and,
2: and and just to interrupt you here right now it's trading at about 40 bucks yeah it's trading forty four dollars okay, okay. But, and but, at, but at Fukushima it was what 70
4: 80. it was 60. Fukushima was in the low 70s high 60s okay. around around gotcha. that time. It had peaked at 137 in June of 07. But what you're looking at, the question you have to ask is, it's a psychological battle, right? So fuel buyers have stayed out of the market for so long. And that recency bias, if you speak to them, they tell you there's all the uranium in the world that's out there, right? Well, John Chimpaglia's vehicle, which is very transparent, has given the world, the fuel buyers, four months to know we're coming. We're going to be buying uranium on a broker platform very transparently, you can go out and buy uranium to secure that uranium. And what has happened in those four months leading up to the launch of the At the money uh, offering from Sprott, crickets, they didn't show up. They bought hardly any uranium. So for the first time in the history of uranium, John's vehicle creates daily price discovery. And what we're learning, the price has gone from 30 to 44 in a month. So what that's telling you is that all of the market's perception about all this uranium that's sitting out there is wrong. So now the question becomes is at what price do the producers say to the utilities, sorry, we've had a decade of devastation to our share price. Now we need to make up. And and then you'll see where that
2: balances. So that's the current state as if there isn't this bigger picture. I want to pivot to this 10, 20 years down the road. One of the quotes I brought up on stage I'm not sure if you were there, Tim, but um, when I was on stage, I brought up this Bill Gates quote from uh, 2017 or 18, I believe. He said, nuclear is ideal for dealing with climate change because it's the only carbon-free, scalable energy source that's available 24 hours a day. Then Elon Musk weighed in about two months ago saying, I'm pro-nuclear. I think modern nuclear power plants are safe. Contrary to what people might think, it's possible to make extremely safe nuclear energy. And then Michael Burry from The Big Short tweeted out, if the government's going to spend $2 trillion, there's no better use than converting the U.S. to nuclear. And um, those are three very influential people. They seem to have come around mentally. They have access to maybe, maybe they're more curious than most people. But let's face it, there's a gap between what they say and what you'd probably find if you polled average people. They probably think of Homer Simpson, uh, Chernobyl, uh, just, you know, deformed fish. How do, how do you bridge that gap?
4: You know, you're seeing more and more if, for instance, in the US, nuclear power is a bipartisan issue, right? Uh, Which it never was. It was the left versus the right. And now you're seeing this realization that if you want to decarbonize the world by 2050, as everyone is coming out, proclaiming they want to do, you just have no choice. And then that opens up the conversation and people's minds to say, okay, well, let's look at some of the data. And when you look at the data, you know we 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 are, we we think of the movie the china syndrome you think of three mile island and chernobyl chernobyl these are one offs and yes scary dangerous but on a when you look at it on a per terawatt hour of electricity produced nothing is safer so i think that opens up people's minds and i you take those those people you just mentioned right right people looking at it and saying we get it and i think if you look at public opinion polls they're turning too how long does it take 1 pound of fuel to power a light bulb Right. So coal is two days. Natural gas is three days. Nuclear, 60, 40 years. So, I mean, when you're talking about power density and what it can really do, and then you start to to realize that it's a safe fuel and people start to really think
5: about that. Yeah. Eric, one other thing I would mention is the the narrative shifting uh, also related to ESG. And obviously with COVID, ESG has grown enormously in, in popularity and from many of the investors I've talked to the last few months about Uranium, it's interesting that they're starting to bucket it in in this broader ESG theme, low carbon theme, electrification theme. So it's going in a bunch of different investor segments, which I think is really interesting. And um, I think the other point around government policy really shifting, I think you're seeing it in the, with the Biden administration you're seeing it in the eu they're obviously arguing it for to be in the uh, uh taxonomy um and there is you know there are obviously countries like germany that have opted to move away for nuclear but I, I sit there and i look and i say now you want to be beholden to russian natural gas good luck with that
1: i want to talk about one of the other challenges um and we, we mentioned this earlier you know which is the waste challenge right mm-hmm. and that's a that's a th- a a mental hurdle that a lot of people have, because as Mike mentioned earlier, it's, it is something that is known, right? It's, you see it and you have to deal with it. And maybe that's a little different than some of the other offsets from energy. So what, what kind of uh, uh, horizon and, and breakthroughs are, are there on the, on the waste front that people should know
5: about? Sure. Well, you know, obviously with all things mining, you have to deal with all, all points of the life cycle, whether it's reclaiming a site or dealing with nuclear, um, uh, spent fuel. So, our technical advisor, WMC Energy, was asked that question once with me, and his response, to that was quite interesting. He said, "No one's ever died from spent fuel rods." When you think about the deaths that happen in coal mining, oil and gas, etc., um, it is safely stored. Nobody wants it in their backyard, and it's not put in, you know, close to big populations. So, it is safely stored. It does rest there. Uh, for very long periods of time, and the radioactivity levels of it decay very quickly in the first five to ten years. So yes, we need to find safe ways to store it, but I think we all have to, to look at the trade-offs with other forms of energy production. You know, for example, coal. I think most people would be, be shocked to, to know that in the United States, which is a very you know one of the wealthiest countries in the world, 19% of its electricity still comes from coal. When I think of coal, I think of people in horse and buggies 100 years ago. It's still a huge part of the energy mix. In China, coal has come down from 70%, it's still 57% and we all know they have major pollution issues there. So, China has really figured out that they need to build uh, a much bigger fleet of reactors to deal with their coal issue and that's that's exactly what they're doing.
0: You don't have to be a rocket scientist to help realize a mission to Mars. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc.
1: Okay, so Michael, China's the world's biggest polluter, right? And where are they at in this reactor conversation? And And what will those reactors actually look like?
4: Sure, so just to, just to, one more point on the, on the waste. The solar panels last you know, 20, 25 years, but we're seeing they last a little bit less and you're coming up to really your first big period where you see the, the, the expiry of the useful life. And one of the things with solar panels is they go into the general electronic waste stream and there you have nickel, lead, chromium, cadmium, all of these really toxic chemicals that are just sitting out there. So that's a real issue that I don't think gets enough attention to that. Uh, regarding China and, um, you know, they have uh, put forth by 2060, they wanna decarbonize and um, going back though, if you go back to the middle 2005 timeframe, they were generating six, seven gigawatts of electricity and they made seven or eight nuclear reactors. You fast forward to today, they have over 50 nuclear reactors. So in 15 years, they've gone on a major spree. And if you look at most of the growth of nuclear power, uh, uh, Two thirds of that is coming uh, out of China. Uh, they're putting forward a big uh, uh, wind and solar effort. Uh, the problem you have when you do that is where is it generated? It's generated along the coast and then that you have to transport it into the mainland and you lose a lot of the electricity that takes place. So China's nuclear program is one where uh, it is a little over 50 gigawatts of electricity today. Uh, and you could see that uh, by 2030 at 130 gigawatts of electricity. And then they continue to keep growing and they plan on keep growing and growing. They could build anywhere from uh, 10 to 12 reactors per year. And it's something that's a very significant uh, program for them. And it's still a single digit percentage of their electricity generation. But, it, it, you know, it, it does provide clean baseload power to, to millions of people every time you build a reactor. So they're very, very committed to it and a major driver of the cycle.
1: Okay, Mike, I got to ask you because this has been a really fascinating conversation, but um, effectively you run a uranium hedge fund, is that right? Correct. Okay, so I got to ask like what's it like to basically like be a character in like a James Bond movie <laughs> every day?
4: It's 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 definitely interesting to meet some interesting characters around the world. I'll
1: say that. Can can I just get a sense of like some of the interesting characters that you encounter? Are they I'll like from say, a James Bond film?
4: i just say that my Russian and Kazakh need, need improvement. I need to speak better Russian and Kazakh. <laughs> <Good job.
1: laughs> You've probably
2: had some good vodka. Yeah, yes. <laughs> that's, that's the perk to that job. Okay. Um, two quickies I want to wrap here. Um, just um, first on Tim, you know, we've seen a couple ETFs go from like nothing, like oblivion, we call it oblivion, and just shoot up. It's almost like when an indie movie hits the big time, like Blair Witch Project. Uh, It happened to Jets. It happened to Kathy Wood, I would say. And, you know, URNM is one of these funds that really, you know, all the odds stacked against you. And now it's uh, well over half a billion dollars. It's now trading about 80 million a day. I looked this time last year between you and URA, you're trading 200 million a day. Last year on this day, you guys traded about 2 million a day. I mean, it's a hundred times increase. I mean, what's that like when it finally hits?
3: Uh, it, it's surreal. My wife was joking. Like I used to, a year ago, I was saying, I just want to get to 50 million. You know, I just wanted to get to break even, but you know, I don't know who said it, but but good things happen to cheap assets. And I've I've been a huge believer in, in the thesis that Mike laid out. It just felt like, at some point people would get would get the story and we just kind of had to keep telling it and the vehicle felt right and listen the, the, i think that the single best part of this experience has been the money that we've made for people who invested in the fund right and a lot of our or a lot of our growth has been a result of performance right it was that the index was constructed correctly you know thankfully for for uh uh, us, we, we decided to keep the Sprout vehicle in um, when our competitors chose to have it leave when they when they did the uh, reorganization from UPC into Sprott. Um I think that's been a big differentiator. But, yeah, it's been fun. I mean, it's been fascinating to watch some of these guys. And I always have had jets in the back of my mind. Um, you know, may, maybe that could happen to us. But, yeah, it's been it's been fascinating.
1: OK, last question. Tim this is something we do on every episode Tim what is your favorite etF ticker that is not your own
3: uh, I really like the meta etF the like matt balls meta etF I was I wanted to launch that product so badly and when they and, and I, I think the guys at roundhill have just been so good and so forward thinking about their tickers and their ideas um, that that's my favorite right now
1: okay Mike what's your favorite ticker that's not Tim's
4: God, uh, you know joel i don't don't repeat this i don't i don't pay attention
1: okay <laughs> all so, right
4: I'm, I'm so engrossed in uranium and energy that i just i'm i'm, I'm the wrong
2: guy to ask <laughs> okay sorry you, you, right. you're excused you you have you you, you, you have some kazakhstans <laughs> to have
1: vodka
5: with okay you're busy yeah.
1: yeah and and john how about yours
5: well um we like we like having physical commodity funds and we like this we like to Pair them with mining funds. So I'm going to say URNM for pairing with U.U. Uh,
1: okay. We'll let you get away with it. All
5: right. Yeah, Tim technically Michael. broke the rules there, but <laughs> it's okay. Uh, it's all right. It's all right. It's all right. It's all right. You guys are
2: uranium heads. What can you, I mean, this yeah. is, it's Tim. That's what you're going to get. T- that question normally would be most, most applicable to Tim, and, and I think he answered yeah. it. Uh, we were satisfied with that.
1: All right. Tim, Michael, John, thank you so much for joining us on Trillions. Thanks for having us. Thanks me. for having us, guys. Thanks, guys. Thanks, for listening to Trillions. Until next time, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you like to listen. We'd love to hear from you. We're on Twitter. I'm at Joel Weber Show. He's at Eric Balchunas. This episode of Trillions was produced by Magnus Hendrickson. Francesca Levy is the head of Bloomberg Podcasts. Bye.
0: You don't have to be a rocket scientist to help realize a mission to Mars. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com/slash QQQ. Invesco Distributors Inc.
2: From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies, from big tech to startups, will dominate?